You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another riveting edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy. As always, we're broadcasting live from my living room in beautiful, scenic Portland, Oregon. And oh man, what a beautiful day it is today. I know Meg's happy. Now, I'm here so at, happy. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> uh, you know, and here at Felony Inc. Podcast, in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth, anything that can be done to curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable, and that's what we attempt to do here, one show at a time, one week at a time at Felony Inc. Podcast. And as always, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you feeling today? I am psyched about the sun, as you well know, Dick. I wait through the rain like a good Portlander, and then the sun comes out, and I remember why I like being a person. Yeah, I think you're about to have two or three months straight sun, so you're going to be oh, enjoying being so. a person for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> lucky, lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just glad to have some air conditioning in my place. Um, so today we have a very special show for you today. Uh, our guest is Jessica Katz, who is the director of the Family Preservation Project of the YWCA of Greater Portland. Uh, for those who don't know, the Family Preservation Project promotes individual and system level change to reduce the collateral consequences of parental incarceration on children, families, and communities. Um, Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I like Meg. I am digging the sun, so happy to see it. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to see it, too. I, li- I like all weather in Portland. I just love Portland. But um, <laughs> Jessica, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, just how you got started with your, with your work with the FPP? Uh, yeah. Um, thanks for having me. And, well, thank um, you for being here. Yeah. Let's see. Um, so... It was about 2000, year 2000, I was in school in New York City and um, had the opportunity to work with uh, a legal clinic uh, that went into prisons in New York, men's prisons and as well as women's prisons, and uh, provided legal education around parental rights. And, um, and it, uh, you know, it changed me in a way that like um I, I really believe that if we're going to put energy and work anywhere it's to uh look at how we got to the place where we're putting people in cages and then you know figuring out how we dismantle that system and uh I moved back to Portland and somebody alerted me to uh, a job that was to start a family literacy program in the women's prison and um I threw my hat in the ring and uh, that has, was about 17 years ago and uh, and the project morphed and evolved over the years. We've had different homes, different funding sources, lots of fights for our survival. Um, but uh, like at its core, it's, um, you know, just really kind of centering family and 
and and love and like in healing and really talking about the actual reasons that people wind up in prison versus you know what the sort of general understanding or or the words on paper indicate that you know why people are there and it's been um you know it's been an incredible honor for for uh the last whatever it is 17 years 18 years i'm a huge fan of of family preservation projects having had the great honor of working with you um and some of the folks in your program which has been very special to me and as a mother who was in prison i saw my son two times in two years um and when I found out about Family Preservation Project, I was so incredibly moved about the ways that you're able to facilitate visits with the mothers and their help with their relationships. Will you tell us a little bit more? Just kind of give us a rundown of all the different ways, like the kind of structure and the ways that Family Preservation Project works with mothers, because it's really, really unique for these parents to be able to spend as much time to get the free phone calls and all the things you guys are doing. Will you give us kind of a structural overview of what the project looks like? Sure. Um, I think first uh, I have never lived in prison. And um, so I'm just, I want to say that from the outset and just, you know, say that my perspective is from, you know, the vantage point of having the privilege to walk in and walk out and, um, during the course of the time that, you know, from the time where I founded the program until now, I've, uh, birth and I'm raising two kids. And the, I will say that, um, you know, part of what the program does is brings kids into the prison to visit with their moms for three hours without security presence there. And, you know, we call it like a therapeutic visit. So the idea is that there's repair work happening um, in a relationship, you know, when the kids come in. And at the end of those visits, before I had my own kids, I was like, you know, I was like Teflon. And, you know, oftentimes at the end of the visit, you're having to like actually physically take a kid out of their mom's arms and return them to the people that they live with on the other side of this door because it's count time and people are barking at you to, you know, get the kids out immediately. And I could do that. Um, I did it okay. And then once I did have kids, I but I got to say like it uh it tore like a piece of my heart out every single time so um it uh so the visits are part of part of what we do but i think the foundational part of what what the project aims to do is just to begin by like restoring a sense of humanity to women who have um had it stripped from them and from that place it's really difficult to kind of assume this awesome responsibility of raising small humans so there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of rebuilding and we try to, um, in a group form, uh, create a sense of family and uh, belonging to, to something. And so all the women in the program are moms. They're all, regardless of where, you know, they came from geographically or what their backstory is, like everybody is suffering this really profound loss of, um, of, of motherhood. And so we, we sort of, you know, start from, from that point of, of healing and you can see this evolution sort of take place. We meet individually with, uh, with women once a week and in groups twice a week. And then we have visits, um, every other week we bring in amazing, um, guests like Meg came in and did some really, I think, transformative 
work with the women because, uh, you know, we just try to bring in as many people who come and bring different experiences and expertise to offer um, something meaningful. And that always, you know, reminded me that, like, when you live in prison, you sit in these rooms and, like, a bazillion people come in to offer you whatever they want to offer you and, like, 99.9% of it is useless um, and doesn't land and doesn't resonate. So we try to bring in uh, people that, you know, offer something that will, will mean something. And um, we also just try to like in, connect women to, to like their role as a mother in every way possible. So they participate in parent teacher conferences um, from our office. They can make doctor's appointments. They can talk to, to their kids providers. They can participate in kids mental health appointments. Um, a lot of work sort of rebuilding relationships with the people who are um, caring for their kids while they're separated because oftentimes like there's just a lot of uh, damage has been done to relationships. And, you know, we know that unless there's some work to strengthen the context to which people will return, it's, it probably won't be successful. So we just spend a lot of time and energy trying to build a really strong context, like both within the project and the kind of family that we create. And then with um, people, family, loved ones outside and, spend a lot of time just repairing relationships and uh, we do family meetings so we bring people in and they can just you know spend time outside of the visiting space and without security there just you know kind of working through whatever needs to be to be worked through so they can move forward and support the kids during their separation. So when you say family visits you mean like the folks that are caring for the kids as well as the inmates because of course there's often hard feelings and resentment and difficulties on the part of the people that are less caring for the kids and how that impacts the relationships. So when you do the family visits, you bring in the caretakers? Yep. Yeah. So it's generally, yeah, the caretakers and then the mom who's, who's in our program and they can just sit down and we're, we're there because we have to be there and we can sort of guide the process. But uh, there's a lot of work done like on the front and back end to prepare women to have these difficult conversations and vice versa on the other side, because yeah, there are a lot of hard feelings and also it gets complicated, right? Because the people that are, are now having their second chance at parenting probably like are doing it better than they did the first time around. But the mom who's sitting in prison didn't, you know, I would say nine times out of 10 did not get what she needed, you know, from, from that parent or, um, didn't didn't have the things provided that she needed to be whole. So there's a lot of healing that just, you know, just all around healing and then where they are in time and space right now, there's lots of resentments and, and just, you know, recognizing that that's all present, that's all true and centering the kids in these conversations means that the adults have to come to some working agreement about how they're going to, you know, work, be together in relationship, even if it's just on behalf of the kids. That's so foundational and so powerful to be able to, um, you know, shift the narratives, the deep narratives for the inmates and the families and how that is able to create new stories and foundations for the kids themselves. You guys did um, have done a lot of legislative work, too. We, in fact, spoke to Brian Lindstrom, the filmmaker that worked on a couple of films for Family Preservation Project recently, and I worked with you on the second one. Um, the Will you talk a little bit about the legislation you did for the Children's Bill of Rights? I think that's so interesting because not only are you working 
inside the prison with this group of inmates, inmate mothers and their families, but they're actually out in Oregon trying to uh, shine a light on how these kids are actually suffering from how the whole family gets incarcerated. Basically, we talk a little bit about the bill of rights and that what they are in that process. Yep. Sure. So we like came upon this bill of rights, which was born in San Francisco, the San Francisco children and incarcerated parents partnership. And they did this incredible, incredible amount of work to both like author the bill of rights and then to kind of like move some of these things forward in the policy arena. And we came, we came upon them and we were in one of our classes and I just, you know, had printed them out and I, we were reading through them and just kind of like dreaming about like, what if it was true that kids like that these rights were actualized for every kid. And, you know, what we sort of realized in our conversation was that it's really foundationally what we're trying to do in the family preservation project is uphold these eight rights that are articulated in the bill. And the women, the moms were kind of like, well, you know, it's not really fair that there's this select group of people in one state who get to, you know, whose kids get to have their rights recognized. Like what if, you know, so we started to dream about like, what if all kids in Oregon had this, you know, the, the same uh, rights and, and that we had to really like honor them and, and actualize them. And, um, will you say what so, the rights are? <clears throat> oh man. Um, I can tell you some of them. I don't have them. Um, I don't have them memorized. It's okay but, if you don't have them memorized. Just give the <laughs> yeah. listeners kind of a broad view of what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. So it's like, I have the right to be safe at the time of my parents arrest. I have the right to be heard when decisions are made about me. Um, I have the right to a lifelong relationship with my parent. I have the right to um, be heard when decisions are made about my parent. Those are, those are some of them. Uh, and so, you know, it's really honoring the fact that like, not only are we, you know, putting adults in cages, but like they're, they live and come from a context. And oftentimes the context is like having a primary caregiving role for tiny humans. And, uh, and then, you know, at, at no intersection in a, in a criminal legal system do we center that at all. So we started to kind of dream about what that would be like. And then the women started to fully get released from Coffee Creek. And um, and we really started to continue thinking about what this would be like. And uh, eventually, like, convened a legislative work group. And I think there were about four formerly incarcerated moms who were, who are on the work group and uh, the work then, you know, became a bill and part of, uh, you know, asking Brian again to, to work with us and making the film like a shield was uh, around the idea that we thought we were going to face a lot of opposition because no state had been able to yet pass the bill of rights with like statewide legislation. And um, I really, saw through Brian's making of our first film Mothering Inside, like the power of the uh the power of art to to change things and move things. And so um Meg was uh interviewed in this film. Did you ever see the film Meg? I could it's like I did, yeah, did yeah, you? yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Cause I was like maybe Meg never saw the film because <laughs> No, I have it. We were... Yeah, I hunted it right. down and I and I found it. And that's okay. just very moving. I mother on mother on the inside is beyond. It's so beautiful and moving. Brian did an amazing, amazing job. And then the Like a Shield with those children's voices, my own son reading the Bill of Rights. It's incredibly moving. Systemic injustices of our justice system are being illuminated. So we know that 
more than ever, arrests are being made in ways that are unfair, that are cruel, that are brutal, that are sometimes violent, and there are children present. And people don't think of that or realize that, that children are actually put in danger at the time of their parents' arrest. It's terrifying for them. They're scarred for life. I mean, there are real intense repercussions to this stuff. So it's both infuriating that this stuff needs to be said out loud and incredibly moving that, you know, you put the effort in and Brian made a beautiful, a beautiful piece about it. Yeah. And thank you. I mean, your, your piece and then like hearing your son read the, you know, the right, it was a incredibly powerful. So yeah, Brian is a, is a, a genius and just like such a compassionate human being and such the right person to tell stories that expose, you know, humanity and like in these really dark places. Um, so the Bill of Rights, the, we made the film, we were hoping like we would just, just put it out into the world and, and really have this issue come alive for lawmakers and other people. Um, and as it turned out, the bill passed unanimously in both um, chambers without like, it wasn't, it wasn't an, a hugely uphill battle. And I think part of that is because it's a, it's a policy bill. Um, I think if we had asked for money, we would have had a much harder time because generally when you ask for money, it's harder. Um, but people were kind of like, yeah, we like, you know, this, of course, it's kind of a no brainer. We, we love the idea. Um, and so, you know, right now it still kind of remains an idea. And there's, um, following the passage of the bill, there was a work group that convened to try to figure out how we, you know, make it more than a, just a set of guiding principles, which it had been in lots of states, but we're but enough of us are committed to like seeing that it actually means something for children. And so um, myself and two to four moms from FPP sat on the work group and, uh, you know, finally, like at the end of that first part of the process made recommendations to a, a body of the governor's office. And there's still, you know, there's still lots to do. It's where we, we, we have no reason to pat ourselves in the back yet. But um, but it's a great start. I would disagree and say you have a lot of reasons to pat yourself on the back. But <laughs> it's like the what is the Zen Cohen? It's you're perfect just the way you are, and you still could use a lot of work. You know, this yeah. is really yeah, really true. an amazing project that is doing incredibly impactful work, and also you know it's uh, standing at the edge of the storm. You know, the ocean tsunami with a sandbag so we have to be okay with helping a few doing doing great impact for a few people until larger changes can be made and I just from the bottom of my heart that's what I've seen with SPP I've worked with several different organizations after having served time and yours just really um, strikes me as being incredibly authentic and one of the most humanizing like you were saying bringing people in I mean to have someone come in with, um, you know, sort of the the attitude that they're helping out folks less fortunate than themselves. There's this charity yeah. vibe that's really not humanizing. And yeah. the same exact context, somebody comes in to teach writing with the charity vibe, say, to help people less fortunate than themselves. It doesn't really go over great. And, you know, a very different person can come in under the same exact context. I'm going to come teach writing, but they have that, like what Brian has with his lens and what you just beautifully have with your attitude in prison is you come in as a human speaking to fellow humans, not as a person that is for people that are less human than you are. Right. And that's a really subtle kind of energetic distinction. That's sort of hard to teach folks and the, the inmates feel it. 
<laughs> they feel it yeah. for sure when folks are coming in trying to offer them something versus coming in to really, really see who they are and meet them where they're at as human beings who aren't just a product of a mistake they made, but, you know, real human beings with lots and lots of complex circumstances. You guys are doing amazing work. I'm going to pause for just a minute and we are going to take a break and we'll be right back to finish this conversation. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, and uh, welcome back to the Felony Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Jessica Cash, Director of the Family Preservation Project, and it's the affiliate of YWCA in the greater Portland area. Um, Jessica, just out of curiosity, I saw a stat that said that 80% of incarcerated women are mothers. Um, that seems like a shockingly high number to me. Uh, are you familiar with that? I am. Yes, I am. Uh, and we, you know, like we, we get asked and challenged a lot about like, why are, you know, why are you not doing anything for men or what about the men? And, um, and, you know, I, I think we have sort of unapologetically said that we are really about and for women and moms and not because, uh, I have anything against dads. I love dads, but, uh, but I think what we know about that statistic is also, that I think the same percentage of those women were also the custodial parent of their children when they came to prison. So because we are kind of centering kids in in our work, um, what we know about kids of incarcerated moms specifically is that they receive 50% fewer visits than kids of incarcerated dads and kids suffer uh, many more disruptions to placements, both where they live and in their school placements because um, because they wind up bouncing around a whole lot. Um, this impacts like their um, health outcomes and social emotional outcomes. And um, so we really have kind of stayed firm in that, like that's what we're doing, which is not to say that somebody shouldn't um, be doing the same work, you know, around fatherhood and dads, but we've kind of like dug our heels in about uh, specifically addressing uh, the, you know, the um, social determinants of health around kids of incarcerated moms specifically. Makes sense. Uh, you know, having been in jail myself, uh, I would be willing to kind of presume that not 80% of incarcerated men are fathers. Um, do you think there's a correlation between that high amount of uh, women that are incarcerated uh, that aren't being mothers? Do you think that that might have something to do with it in terms of this? How how strenuous it is just being a mother in today's society, you know, especially if you're coming from, uh, you know, impoverished area or just you know, systematic uh, oppression of women in general still being a factor today. 
Yeah, I mean, I totally think that that's I totally think that that's a play. Um, you know, I think we are we have a criminalized maternal poverty in this country, and a lot of uh, those women wind up incarcerated. And um, and you know, like anecdotally, I've been really interested just in talking with women about like how many times during the course of like from the time you got arrested, you know, till the time you got out, was your status of, of being a mother like weaponized or used against you. And the stories are like very consistent. Um, you know, I think motherhood is kind of weaponized in the system. So people will be told like, um, you know, if you ever want to see your kids again, you know, you, you take this plea or else, you know, you're not going to see your kids again. So yeah. like in the, in the sentencing and plea bargaining process, also when women are incarcerated, like if they have two oranges in their locker instead of one, it's like, you know, you're somebody's mother. Like, what are you thinking? And why? Well, like think about your kids for once. And it's like, and I was just hungry. Like I just had two oranges in there. It has nothing to do with my being a mom. So I think that it, it's kind of always at play. That makes sense. Uh, and I completely agree with that. Um, so this kind of sidebar here, uh, I saw that just the family preservation project has eight direct service programs, uh, four of which are in Coffee Creek. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on what those are? Yeah. So we have uh, the project that, uh, we had the good fortune of having Meg come and hang out with us. And that's kind of this intensive family reunification program. Um, and that's for women that have about like two years or less. And we're trying to kind of meaningfully put the family back together. That's a program I kind of mentioned the structure of. Um, and that had been our only program for a long time. And we knew that we were barely scratching the surface of like meeting this real and present need that women had at Coffee Creek. And so we spent a long time kind of trying to develop um, other pieces of the program that were meeting women kind of like wherever they were at. So not everybody was in the place where they were ready to put the family back together because relationships were like broken beyond repair or because um, finances were just like too tough or the geography was tough, whatever was at play. Um, we knew that those women still needed our help. So we built um, over time another component of the program that is a, it's kind of like an ER for incarcerated moms and we have uh, like a pretty open door policy. So if um, if you need our help and you're a mom, like we will help you wherever you are on the continuum. So we do lots of months of work there with uh, um, the child welfare system and where that intersects with the prison system. Um, and uh, so if if women come into prison with an open child welfare case, they run the risk of irrevocably losing their right to ever be a mother again. So in addition to serving time, the state can take away their legal rights to motherhood. And that's just like an intersection where we spend a lot of time working. Cause to me, that is, um, it is kind of unco unconscionable that that is one of the collateral consequences of the system that we've built. And we're, we're not okay with that. So we spend a lot of time there making sure that women are full participants in their cases that we can, you know, advocate for them, that they get to talk to their attorneys, they get to talk to their caseworkers, they get to participate in every uh, part of the hearing that we prep them to go fight the case, you know, fight it in court if, if that's what we want to do, because that is a, a whole shit show that um, nobody should really ever have to go through. Um, and we're serving like a lot of women as like a high capacity in that program. Sometimes it's a one-off and sometimes it's kind of ongoing. A lot of women have kids who are also in custody and as you both know, for the phone system in prison, like you can't call another facility. So if a kid is doing five years and the mom is doing, you know, five years, they can't talk for those five years. And so we kind of bridge that gap. 
Um, we run groups in that program based on whatever we're seeing coming in as like needs. So if we're getting like high volume of kites saying, you know, I'm really struggling with my teenager, you know, we have the ability to kind of like build a group around parenting teens and uh, have, you know, it's, it's really like led by the women themselves and we're kind of there to facilitate that sharing wisdom, sharing knowledge. Like I tried this, it worked really well. I did this, it worked really well. Um, we're addressing like grief and loss and child development and um, how to navigate the child welfare system. So whatever presents itself to us, we try to be responsive and kind of create a group and there's a sense of like camaraderie around, like I'm not the only one dealing with this thing, but I have women I can lean on, you know, when I'm in the housing unit, I can ask them questions and they know my story and it's like kind of safe to talk about. Um, and then monthly we sponsor like a kind of like a lecture series, which uh, Meg has also come to, to participate in, which was amazing. Uh, and I loved doing those talks. I think I did two of them. Yeah, there were, yeah, you were well loved. And so that's like the most inclusive thing that we can do. We can have up to 150 women in the chow hall. And so as many as 150 women can come and, and, you know, it could be women that aren't participating in our other services that are interested in that particular topic. We're trying to bring in as many people with like lived experience uh, as possible and also to fill gaps that, you know, in services that aren't being provided at Coffee Creek. Like I think the statistic is like in the 90% of women have um, experienced intimate partner violence and there's like nothing institutionalized in the prison that addresses that at all. So we try to bring in, you know, where, where we know that there are these glaring gaps, we try to bring in somebody with some expertise in that. Um, and what else? Uh, we had been building um, uh, like a transition program called Overcome with uh, some formerly incarcerated women who wanted to, uh, you know, help women coming out, just kind of build like a peer-to-peer thing that's had kind of fits and starts, you know, depending on what, what life throws at people. And, um, and we have uh, an idea of building something that's like more formal it's called the welcome wagon and um we started to you know started to make some strides in making that come uh to reality uh there's a reading program called between the lines where women read books to their kids their voices are um recorded and the book and the recording of their mom's voice and also it's at the men's prisons as well is uh sent home and uh and then we have an alumni association so because the program has had longevity People remain really connected. We sponsor uh, like two opportunities to get together every year, summertime and in the winter and have some like really fun events and people can reconnect back with one another. And it's crazy because people come who have been out of the program for like a decade. They come with their kids who are like grown men and women. I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> that's crazy. We've been doing this for a long time. And uh, and then really like provide opportunities for for as many people to plug into the advocacy and policy work that we're doing. Um, so right now we are working together on a, another legislative work group to try to pass um, some legislation that is around um, gender specific um, practices in, in prison and some more like trauma informed ways of um, being. So my, I, I, I am not like somebody who believes that we can have trauma informed prisons. I think that that's total nonsense. But um, I think we can do better than we're doing currently. No prisons would be optimal, but since we have them doing the best work we can with them. Yeah, I mean, it's just top to bottom. 
riddled with with issues, but to have people that are actually trying, and I'm really impressed with um, the what you're talking about in terms of the weaponizing motherhood, the ways that that comes up over and over and it becomes also, you know, a feminist issue is really, it's really enlightening. It's really important for people, I think, to be able to know that this stuff goes on. The more we can illuminate what is happening inside of these prisons, the more we can humanize the people so that when they get out, they're not riddled with shame and instead they're empowered to tell their story in a way that helps people understand I think we're getting closer to actual, you know, overhaul of these systems when people can understand that the people inside these cages are people just like them. Right. Right. And I think, you know, to, to the extent that we have been able to do this, I think it's, I can't underscore the importance of um, people that have lived in prison speaking about the experience in, um, in a way that like speaks truth to power and, and provides a counter narrative because the one narrative we have about what prisons are and what they do are from prison officials. And, um, and you know, it's like, it's hard to get into prison unless you're sent there. And if you go in, you get a really sanitized tour and you see what the prison officials want you to see. And you talk to the people that they want you to talk to. And, um, and, and we all just sort of like believe that that is the, the narrative about what goes on in prison. And so, in, in, in a way that's not like it is still collaborative and isn't like intended to be super confrontational. It's like, you know, to provide a counter narrative and, and, and say, you know, maybe these are, I think what we find are there's a lot of lofty ideals. And so people that participate in this work from uh, the prison side of things, you know, may believe in their heart that like the things that they want to see happen are actually happening. But to translate that sort of uh, aspirational idea to, the people on the ground who have to actually execute you, you, you know, you know, that that rarely happens. One of my jobs when I was in prison was to um, help one of the directors organize his office binders of all of the programming that was in the prison would be really organized because when the folks would come in to make sure that the funding was being appropriated correctly, they would be based on the organization of these binders, not on the functionality of the programs themselves or whether people were doing great work, but these binders were, you know, kind of the most important thing that these programs were in place and that the, what do you call it, the outlines of them were, were correctly organized in the binders. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot <laughs> right. of programs in prison that are in place so that prisons look like they're doing the job that we want to think that they do but there aren't that many programs that are doing jobs that are actually keeping people out of prison since we know that prisons are actually in place with an added, uh, an added element of wanting people to come back because they're for profit. I'm really struck by the idea that, and, and noticed that when I was there, I you talked with your group at, at Coffee Creek and there were zero of the staff, you know, zero correctional officers in the room zero correctional officers in the room when you have your private groups and you're saying you're able to facilitate visits without security as well. Will you tell us like how that was, how that came about, what your relationship is like with the prison? Because the power of being able to meet with your children and family without the police staring over you, it's a whole different experience. And it, you know, it probably is more, it's a more important element than most people probably understand what it means to be in a room without the 
COs inside of a prison. How did you get, how were you able to facilitate that? What's your relationship with the prison like now? Um, well, I think it's, that's a tough one, Meg. Um, <laughs> there was, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of intentionality around, um, creating the space within a space that was obviously less than ideal and, um, making it a space that could be as, you know, like healing as possible. And so a lot, you know, it's been like pushing a boulder up a hill for, for a long time, but really, uh, kind of trying to build authentic relationships with, with people who work, um, at the facility and to try to, you know, garner trust. Like I want, I want something bad to go down, no less than you want something bad to go down. Right. I don't want anything coming in like through the visits, which, you know, by the way, that's not right. We all know that's not how anything actually kids don't bring things in their diapers. Um, but you know, the, the illusion that like, that that's, this was like, you know, some sort of weak link where, you know, terrible things could happen. It was, you know, just, there was a lot of like, we're on the same page about this. Like, I don't want anything. I don't want anything bad to happen to children or their moms, like, or the people that care for them. Like we're, we're, we're in this kind of like together. And that sounds, we don't, we, we want everything to go really well. Um, so there's, there've been, you know, like a few steps forward and some steps back and um, just really trying to, uh, just to hold on to the things that really matter and not make everything a hugely contentious issue. Like we let a lot of things go. We let a lot of things slide. We are different to the extent that we can be, but when it comes to like uh, it, there being any negative impact on the kids, that's, you know, then we have like a pretty hard line um, in the sand about like, this is why this is important to us to do it this way. And this is why we can't have it done this way. These are the implications of having it done this way. So um, I like just like like everything else, right? Really trying to to build on relationship and 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 like trust because there are, our end game is always to you know to try to allow space for healing to happen, and that's got to be really carefully thought through. And we need collaboration, you know, on the other end too. So just I think a lot of relationship building and uh, and trying to just build trust and also you know be be firm about the things that like actually really matter and know when to compromise and when not to and like compromise as much as possible that's a beautiful thing um so jessica in july 2017 uh senate bill 241 bill of rights for children of incarcerated parents was passed and uh by the legislature which actually made Oregon the first state to recognize the rights of mothers and children. Um, did you kind of take me back there for a second? First of all, just two part question. First of all, did you think that was going to happen? And were you confident going into that? And then second of all, um, how do you even go about doing something like that? Um, did I think it was going to happen? Uh, I thought it would be a lot harder than it, than it actually was. And, you know, to be clear, this was like, this was really the victory of, um, of the moms and the kids that like particularly were participants in the family preservation project. Like it was really, it was their win and they put in, you know, just an incredible amount of work and had so much courage to, you know, like I mentioned, like to speak truth to power and to show up in spaces and say, you know, like, 
you know, this was, this was my story and this is how it impacted me. And just like some incredible young people that like fill me with hope. So I just want to be be clear that really like the, the work was, was theirs and they had, um, you know, some allies and legislators and then, you know, other uh, community members, but it was, a, it was definitely a village, but I would say that, um, the work was, was led by people who had lived these experiences. And that was, that made it, you know, it's hard to argue with, right? Like I can, you can argue with me all day long because it wasn't my experience. But when people are saying this was my experience, this is how it impacted me. It became very hard for people to be like, well, no, I think that's a shitty idea. Cause you know, uh, so, so it was a lot less of a lift. And again, you know, we didn't ask for money, so that helps. Um, but uh, so essentially I think in these processes, you have to get like a, elected official or two or three who are really behind the idea and they add, you know, a layer of legitimacy to the work and they can kind of, kind of convene the group and, um, you know, and then I think collectively make, make sure that the right people are, are at the table and, you know, just continually check yourself about who's not at the table. Why aren't they there? You know, what are we missing in their absence? And um, I would say, you know, doing that kind of work, it's, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's like everything is about who's at the table and who's not at the table and how the people at the table got to the table and why the people that didn't get to the table aren't there. And then kind of what you're missing when, and those voices aren't elevated. So I think we had, you know, the good fortune of some really talented and passionate uh, people who had uh, lived in prison or been impacted by their parents' incarceration. And that was, that was definitely the key to its success. And, and that makes all the sense in the world. Um, and speaking of that, uh, just recently you were advocating for permanent funding uh, in the legislative station in February 2020. Uh, it's kind of been a roller coaster ride or a rocky road in terms of getting like this consistent funding for the uh, family preservation project. Uh, can you give us an update on what's going on? Like, what's the current state of affairs with that uh, legislation in action right yeah. now? Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Um, so we had introduced uh, House Bill 4131 at the beginning of the last legislative session. It was in part to provide uh, stable funding for the Family Preservation Project. So it would have um, allocated funds for seven years, which was like, you know, I couldn't even imagine. Um, and then there was part two of the bill, which was around um, legislating some gender-specific policies in that Oregon prison system. Um, the bill wound up having a gender specific piece of it amended out. And then the bill itself um, didn't move because no bills were moving because there was uh, a walkout. Um, so we were then guaranteed to the extent that we could be guaranteed that funding would be secured through the final reconciliation bill. Um, and that bill wound up not being heard because again, the walkout and then session ended early. So we were left, um, unfunded uh, at the end of, of session. Um, there was some talk and idea that there would be a special session that would convene to kind of finish the unfinished business of the full session, um, and then COVID hit. So, um, you know, clearly uh, funding for FVP is, is you know, not a priority of the state, given all of the other competing demands right now. So uh, we are operating now just through um, private funding, um, through the generosity of some wonderful Oregon foundations like Spirit Mountain Community Fund, the Collins Foundation, um, and OCF. 
the Clark Foundation and and others. So um, we're trying to like, you know, we're trying to stay alive again until we can get back uh, to the legislative session um, and, you know, and hopefully the dust settles with our uh, public health crises. Well, I mean, I'll definitely be keeping, you know, paying attention to that very closely and keeping my fingers crossed for you. Um, I don't, you know, obviously it's, yeah, it's weird that you even have to keep doing this over and over again. It should just be something that's established second in made history. The second, uh, you guys have, I mean, it's proven. If you guys watch Mothering on the Inside, uh, which is on YouTube, everyone can watch it right now. You see the family preservation project in, in action and how in, impactful and important it is, you know, in my opinion, and not just for the children and, and, you know, for the family structure in general, but just for society. Uh, yeah. it, it kind of, it's like a beacon in a way. Yeah. So, uh, Meg knows, uh, one of our really amazing alumni, Nova, and she always says like, good breeds good, you know? So like when we were there and we were doing something good, it just like, it became contagious and like, not, not even just people in the program, but like people, other women that we lived with, like it just, you know, it can go either way. And so hopefully it's, um, it's doing good. And I think, you know, it, like, I wonder sometimes what it would be like if we just focused on the work and not like fighting for the work all the time, but like also fighting for the work kind of keeps you, keeps you honest about, you know, like continuously making the case over and over again, like why this is important and why it's a value. And, and like to, to make that case, you also have to be like doing the thing. So, you know, part of it keeps us really honest. And part of it is like, is, uh, exhausting but (laughs) (laughs) part of it is ridiculous yeah we're living in a time where we have we are seeing that so much funding goes towards law enforcement and correction and we really i think would all like to see a lot more funding going toward preventative measures and things that are really truly helping folks their mental health their family cohesion their connectivity all of those things. And so, well, we just have a couple of minutes left, Jessica. Will you say all of the things, um, you know, for the listeners, where they can find you, where they can donate, anything else you would like to promote? Um, I think this is the time. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we, uh, you can find us, um, on Facebook at Mothering Inside slash the Family Preservation Project. Uh, you can find us on the YWCA Greater Portland website under the What We Do tab. There is a link there to donate to the project if that is of interest. Um, and I, my contact information is there as well. And since the um, beginning of the pandemic, there have been um, no visits in the prison, no programs in the prison. So the women that we work with haven't seen us or their kids or family members or people that they love for, you know, now over three months, um, nor are they able to participate in any programming. So um, we have launched a, a pen pal project. Um, and so if people are interested in, you know, just sending some uplifting um, mail to women who, you know, may feel very fearful right now and left behind, that's something else that we are trying to connect as many women with um, just some, love and humanity um, in terms of mail. So people could do that as well. Um, and so how do they do that? How would they um, get involved they just, in that? They could just email me through the, uh, through the website. 
Uh, my okay. contact information is there and just say, hey, I'd love to do that. And I will, um, okay. I, I will, I'll try to hook that up. Um, and then the two films uh, about the project, if people want to learn more, Mothering Inside um, and Like a Shield are, are available through um, YouTube as well. Contact information is on there also. That's so great. That's it. Yeah. So one last question, Jessica. Uh, you know, you've been doing this, you've been uh, spearheading uh, the Family Preservation Project for two decades. And uh, I think it's fair to say that you've essentially dedicated your life to this. Where would you like to see um, this, the FVP in like 10 years from now? Oh, man. I had, I had a feeling the last question was going to be like a hard one. <laughs> um, I am much more, much more interested in like working upstream people say all the time, like there should be FPP in every prison. And, um, you know, I'm like really conflicted about that idea. I think we spend a lot of energy dressing prison up, um, and making it look better, feel better. So we can all kind of live with the sense that we participated in, in the building of the system. So, um, I think as long as we are here, I would love to see, you know, FPP be re- replicated so that women could have, um, the opportunity and kids could have the opportunity to kind of put these relationships back together. I think are vital. Uh, and also, uh, I just think we got to stop locking so many people up so that this isn't even a thing that we have to do. So in That's 10 years, I would love to see, I would love to see a greatly diminished, um, you know, carceral system period. Yeah, I think we all would. Um, Amen. Just, uh, again, <laughs> Thank you so much for everything. Uh, if you guys want to check her out, uh, check out the YWCAPDX.org, uh, the Family Preservation Project uh, on Facebook. Um, just to remind you guys, this Sunday is Father's Day. Um, not to get off subject with the, the mothering, but uh, it's a perfect time to write, set phone calls, put money on books for people that are in prison right now that are fathers. Let them know you're thinking about them. Let them know you care about them right now. Uh, especially with this COVID thing, just decimating prisons. It's more important than ever to, to be in touch with people uh, on specific holidays and Father's Day is a big one. Um, in the meantime, you can catch us every Friday, 10 a.m. at startupradionetwork.com. And from me and Meg and Jessica and Alon, see you next week. Thank you. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.